So many of us work by default. We come in in the morning, we open our computer, and the email determines what we spend our day on. And suddenly we get to the end of the day and we've been in back-to-back meaningless meetings. We've just focused and processed email all day. And now suddenly I've got to get my real work done. Does that sound familiar at all? Welcome to Upon Arrival, a show that uncovers stories and strategies that make up all the moving parts of business events tourism with me, Adelaine Ung. Don't know about you, but I love a good cup of tea. I'll guarantee that at every event you've seen me attend in recent years, you would have found me making a beeline for the tea table or hot beverage service. And whenever I get my cup and it's not really full, I would feel shortchanged because I love tea. You should see my tea cupboard. You could bury a human in there under my multiple tea boxes. But I never knew that how I filled my cup of tea could hold a life lesson that could significantly improve my productivity. For that, I have to thank my first guest of the year, Donna McGeorge, who's spoken to countless people who feel insanely busy, but not always productive. If you can relate, stay tuned. Donna promises to give you some of your time back with some strategies from her new book, The One Day Refund, which might interest you if you found that working from home didn't translate into the extra hours for leisure or more relaxation that you were hoping for. Here's part one of our conversation. Donna, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's so good to be here, Adeline. I could do with an extra day in the week. I think many of us would love that. But you're not talking about expanding time, are you? You're talking about reclaiming time. And you have a method to all of this. Have I got that right? You've absolutely got it right. In fact, I have to really check myself a lot because the tendency for all of us is to say, I need more time or I need more space or I need more capacity, more, more, more. And I'm like, actually, we've got enough. We just need to be cleverer about how we use what we've got. So I'm all about what can we stop doing? What can we remove? What could we take away? So you're absolutely right. I think reclaiming is the perfect word for it. So it is the new year, the first month of the year, and many people are into new year resolutions. And I think kind of in that process of, you know, what time can I block out and what what should I change for this year? And it almost sounds like that's what you're encouraging us to do with the one-day refund at this time of the year when it's popular to think about these things. But you yourself don't believe in New Year resolutions, is that right? So there's a couple of things in there. So absolutely, I encourage people to block out time. We'll talk about that um, in a bit. But New Year's resolutions, I think we've all been so indoctrinated with this smart goal, go hard, push, block, all of that. I'm a bit more of a fan of setting intentions or having a big word or something that helps you, a decision that you make right now that helps you make less decisions down the track. And so if we think about, if I was to make my big word health this year, for example, then the decision I ever have to make any day or any time is, is this going to improve or not my health? And that's, it's a simple decision. Does this, does this help me or not? And so when we have a big word or an intention, I think it's a lot easier than saying, I'm going to try and, I mean, it's, I don't really want to get everyone adding you around, you know, smart goals are great, but you know, this, I'm going to lose 10 kilos by the 3rd of March. And I think, oh, that just feels hard. And it feels somewhat punitive. Whereas I I tend to go for a more um, aspirational, inspirational, big word or intention for the year. And I find I can stick to that easily when I do that. 
Yeah. Does that come from having made a whole bunch of New Year resolutions yourself that somehow year after year fails to get done? I mean, I think that's the experience of most of us. Just thinking about this the other day, we've all gone out and gym memberships in January. I reckon (laughs) sales for treadmills and bikes and Pelotons, all that sort of stuff, they're booming right now as people go, right, I'll get the equipment, I'll get myself set up and I'm going to go hard. And, uh, and, and I think even that language around it's going to be hard, I'm going to go hard, you know, I'm all about ease. And so how do I create the easier way for me to do things? And so, for example, I'll continue with health because that seems to be a, a very popular uh, news resolution most of the time, is what's the easy way for me to improve my health? And that doesn't mean that I'm lazy. It just means the path of least resistance because yeah. we've got so much in our worlds and, and something like decision fatigue, for example, becomes an issue which impacts our willpower. And so if I'm trying to make too many decisions about how I'm going to do my world, when it gets to the time of day where I have to jump on the peloton or go to the gym or whatever I'm choosing to do, it's just that much harder. And so I choose to do things like walk my dog, which I find a very easy way to keep my health up. Now I'm not aiming for bodybuilding level health, but you know, I'm just looking for, you know, good food choices, drinking green tea, things like that, which I find they're easy to do and don't require me to be constantly calorie counting or, you know, counting steps or anything like that. Oh, that sounds terrific. (laughs) I think there's something you talk about, which a lot of people can also identify with, and that is feeling insanely busy, but not always feeling productive. I mean, why do we even feel that way? And how do we know our feelings are actually telling us the truth? Because are we just overloading ourselves with unrealistic expectations with what we can achieve in the day or within a week? And if that is the issue, then what is the antidote to that? We do. So the first thing is we've, so we need to reframe boredom, I believe. I think we've been sold, we'll sit down the garden path, whatever it is, we've been sold a, a bung deal that we think that being productive means 100% on 100% of the time and getting loads of stuff done. And actually it's not. There's heaps of studies that show that those of us who operate at about 85% for most of the time are actually more productive, that having rests is really important, having downtime is really important, things like daydreaming, you know, we all know about the benefits of meditation, etc. But but even boredom has its use by forcing our brains to just quiet for a moment. And so I'd love any of your listeners to think anytime they're thinking that they're bored to kind of celebrate because they're creating and setting themselves up for greater productivity down the track. I never thought about it that way. I sometimes, I mean, I have a tendency to ruminate. So I have found myself in bed for an hour just thinking. And that to me at the end of the hour, I'm like, I'm not even sure if that was productive. And I mean, where does that fall in your your understanding of things? It just means you've got a lot on your mind, actually. Um, and and it's, it's, you know, I've got a mate, her name's Lynn Kazali. She refers to our brains like dump trucks, if you imagine, just a big old truck that's full of stuff. And it's from time to time we have to empty out the truck. Now, things like sleep help with that. But for the most part, it's getting it out of our head and making space. And so if you imagine that your head is for having ideas, not storing them, from time to time, you've got to 
you know, get the ideas out of your head. And I hate to say it, but the, not, I don't hate to say it, but the, the best way to do it is writing it down. And so if other people are feeling the same way you do, Adelaide, around that, then I'd say, like, whatever's in your head, write it down. Every day, just write down everything that's on your mind. And if it's tasks, that's great, but it could be lots of things. It could be, you know, one of the reasons I think we end up still feeling overwhelmed or exhausted by the end of a day, even though we felt like we've got a lot done, is we haven't accounted for all the things we just carry in our brains. And so you might be worried about a parent or a family member, or you might be worried about your kids and something about school. And you're storing all of that in your head, which means even though you might have a big long list of tasks that have been ticked, there's still stuff consuming your brain. And so, you know, whether it's journaling or whether it's just literally just getting it out of your head, I'm worried about this, I need to think about that, my glasses are scratched, I better book an OPSM appointment, you know. And a lot of the times on our to-do lists that we make, we rarely put personal admin. And personal admin consumes a lot in our brains. And so this is why I'm a huge fan of getting it out. Don't store anything in there. So for you, I would do, if you're lying there ruminating on stuff, I'd say have a pen and paper by your bed and just write that stuff down. Well, I just bought myself a notebook called the 3AM notebook. So ah, <laughs> that's going to live by my bedside. doesn't have to be 3AM, but I know what that's for. But I do love that you love a good cup of tea. You know, I live in Melbourne, so it's a coffee-loving state. So I'm surrounded by coffee lovers. So it's great when I get a, a fellow tea lover. But oh my God, that lesson in your book about filling your cup of tea or coffee 85%, which is what you just talked about, instead of filling up to almost the brim was an aha moment for me. I love tea. So whenever I get the chance, I'm getting as much of it as possible. But you use this simple illustration for productivity and effectiveness that I think I will be remembering for a long time. Can you share the lesson here? Yes, sure. I mean, it's it was a really simple observation that I made at an in-person meeting, which has been rare over the last couple of years, that people who left, it was about 15% room in their cup, could move around the room easily. Those people that filled up their cups to the brim, and imagine that, you've got, you've got a tea cup or coffee cup full to the brim, and you're trying to make your way through people back to a, a chair or table. And of course, you're going to spill it right? Or you have to go so slowly that it's agonizing to make your way back to the spot. Whereas those who hadn't filled their cup could move around, could even gesture wildly to some extent and and not spill any. And so that really struck me as a great metaphor for our heads, that when our heads are really full, it takes longer to do things. We can't find things as well as we normally can. We, We struggle a bit. Whereas when there's space in our head, we can you know, we can think and find and discover that much easier. And in fact, that 15% buffer is what I call adaptive capacity, the ability to be able to, in the moment, think and respond in a positive, somewhat opportunistic way. So if something happens, how do I seize the opportunity in this, rather than I'm too full to even think about it. Yeah, I can imagine because I I can think of the many times I have filled my cup of tea to the brim almost um, because I love the drink. And, you know, I'm trying to navigate my way across the floor or up the stairs. And um, once in a while, there's been a bit of an accident. And then you spend more time mopping things up. So there's just so much you can push your capacity before something has to give. And that sometimes translates, I think, to what you do talk about, which is also how our body is impacted when 
we don't stop and we don't give ourselves that buffer. Our bodies have a way of, of um, telling ourselves that enough is enough. So that's something that we need to, I guess, be a little bit better at paying attention to. But your promise is to give us back 15% more capacity in our lives or a day in our week back. That made me go like, really? Is that possible? I mean, if you told me two to three hours in a week back sounds believable, but a whole day, I mean, it sounds incredibly appealing, but how easily will we be able to do this? I mean, how is this possible? Well, first of all, a lot of us missed a great opportunity during the pandemic when we were working from home. And so if you think about the average commute for most people is about an hour door to door. And so people were either getting trains, buses, you know, driving, whatever. Through the pandemic, we had the opportunity to work from home, which meant we had an hour at each end of the day. And so straight up there is 10 hours a week. And that was one of the inspirations for this book because so many people, I said to them, if you had an extra day in your week, what would you do with it? Most people would have said something like, hang out with my kids, do my hobby, relax, read books, you know, invest in self. And yet over the last two years, most people invested that extra day they had in more email, in work, in projects, etc. And so there's a part of it that says that, you know, if you let yourself, you could let any waking hour be subsumed by work. And so the promise and the premise of this book is what if you just didn't do that? What if you decided that I'm going to allow a a buffer so that I'm not constantly running at 100%, 100% of the time? What if I was very conscious and selective about what I spend my time on? And what if I really thought about the things that I value most? And so the 15% is it's not an arbitrary number, although 15% of seven days is one day thereabouts. I know if anyone's got calculators, it's probably that there's a percentage or something or a fraction something in there. But the idea is that work a bit smarter and a bit more consciously. So, so many of us work by default. We come in in the morning, we open our computer, and the email determines what we spend our day on. And that kind of drives then our day. And suddenly we get to the end of the day and we've been in back-to-back meaningless meetings. We've just focused and processed email all day. And now suddenly I've got to get my real work done, which then starts eating into the time that I should be spending with my families. And so there's nothing magic here. It's, it's, um, It's more just around you know, life by design or work by design or choiceful about what I'm doing rather than just going along without thinking about it and just defaulting to whatever's presented in front of me. This sounds, um, I'll have to say, sounds easy to do, but I got to admit, I, I mean, I had my doubts when I first kind of encountered this idea because at the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I'm not sure if this would really work for me. It's not the method. It's not any method. It's, you know, me and other people like me who suspect that if I deleted stuff out of my schedule, I would only find ways to fill that up fast. I mean, I will always be filling it up with things I'm catching up on. And and that doesn't, I'm not sure if that's what you would describe as buffer time or the best use of, of buffer time, if that makes any sense. Look, it makes complete sense. And that's how you'd start. So let's say you protected, you know, 15% is just over an hour, so an hour and 10 minutes or something like that. So let's just say an hour. Let's say you protected an hour in your day. And for most people it's going to be 
you're still going to work. It's not like I'm saying everyone take an extra hour off and goof off. It's you're just protecting it from meetings or from other people's obligations. So you're protecting it for you. And so if I'm protecting it for for me, I get to choose what I do. And you're absolutely right. The first couple of weeks you do this, you probably are going to be playing catch-ups on things that were due a while back or things that were due yesterday. But there's a moment where you have what I call your activity horizon shifts. And all of a sudden you start working on stuff that's due today and you get to the end of the day and you have one of those days, we've all had them, one of those days where you go, this was such a productive day. I felt like I got ahead of the curve. I felt like I'm, I'm on top of things, that I'm, I'm in control. And then your activity horizon shifts again and suddenly you're working on things due for next week or the week after or the next month or the next quarter or whatever. So I'm not going to get too carried away here, but I've actually got clients that I work with that have uh, one guy in particular messaged me and said, okay, I've caught up. Now what? And and, and I said, great, what's due next week? And he goes, I don't know. I've never been able to think that far ahead. I've never had the luxury of looking ahead. And so you are absolutely right, Adelaide. If you've got a lot of stuff backed up, you would be using that hour, but at least you'd be doing it uninterrupted on your terms without thinking I'm going to be dragged into a meeting. So it is important that we protect it. And it's the worst thing that happens, the worst is that you've got an hour in your diary where you can just sit back and ponder. (laughs) Or ruminate. (laughs) Or ruminate, yes. (laughs) Um, But it's interesting that you you also kind of compartmentalise four areas in our lives that need to kind of work together in order to make this happen. You talk about the mental space and then there's also the physical space that we need to reclaim in order for all of this to be in harmony. Can you explain? Sure. So when I talk about creating space in our world, there's mental and physical space. And so the mental is, of course, we've talked a lot about this already so far, the the creating space in your head. But then there's physical space. I, I can't tell you how many people I talk to that that say things like, I can never find my keys, I can never find my sunglasses, I've lost my wallet, and all of these physical aspects of our world that create friction. And so the physical aspect is around how do I how do I create a little less friction in my life and create more flow so that when I am heading out the door, I can effortlessly find everything I need. Now, any of your listeners that have kids know exactly what I'm talking about. Around eight o'clock in the morning, when we're heading off to school and suddenly one of your kids says, oh, I'm meant to have a scale model of the solar system project <laughs> due in, in today. And suddenly there's this uproar in the house or we can't find our footy boots or we can't find our swimming gear. And that kind of physical space can sometimes be really impactful. Um, And the other aspect of it is we've all had to make adjustments around working from home and some have been able to do that easier than others. And so being really clear about the space that I use in my home for utility, what's it actually good for and when? what should I do and when and not contaminating space, physical space becomes really important. Okay. And if you were to go through the four, because I know we have listeners who are needing to, what were the four? What were the four? Beautiful. So the four key areas that I talk about are thinking, breathing, living, and working space. 
And so any one of those, you can work on any one of those and my belief and my evidence is that you'll have a knock-on effect on them. So if I start with thinking space, this is obviously mental uh, space and it is all about how do we create more space in our heads and, you know, as I said before, it's meant for having ideas, not storing them. So how do I clear out space in my head so that I can have the ideas, solve problems, use to the full extent that I can the executive function of my brain? And so the strategies around that, pretty much what we've talked about, we've got to get stuff out of our head, we've got to write stuff down, we've got to make better decisions and choiceful decisions about what I'm using my headspace for. Um, breathing space, this is kind of around... Um, I started to first hear a lot of people, a lot of women really talk about this around, I just don't have space to breathe. They're being pulled all over the place. They've got workplace obligations and personal obligations and friendships and family and all the stuff that just pulls them all over the place. And so when we're creating breathing space, what we're doing is in some respects conducting an audit of who am I giving away, not just the precious commodity of time, but the, if not more, precious commodity of attention. And so am I giving it to social media? Am I giving it to friends that, or probably more acquaintances that aren't serving me? And really it's around when I, where I'm spending my breathing space time, is it around creating energy or is it taking energy away? Um, and so we need to create that space for ourselves as well. So living space is what I kind of touched on before. This is when we're getting into the physical realm. It's right, making sure that I've got a, you know, to quote Ben Franklin, a place for everything and everything in its place, that I save myself the future friction by having a spot for my keys, knowing where my handbag goes or knowing where I put my wallet, all that sort of stuff. Um, and also removing, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a fan of minimalism generally. And so have I got just clutter and stuff? I think, I think we're going to see that. It's a bit of a prediction here. I think we're going to see a move away more and more from stuff and creating more space. We don't need as much stuff, I don't reckon. Um, and finally, working space, because this is the one that a lot of people get hooked on. They, they'll they say to me, Donna, this is all good and all, creating all this space, but who's going to do everything that I need to do? And there's some aspects of working space that, that you can take from the others. It's still around you know, I still get you to do, I'm, I'm a fan of lists and, and I'm a fan of paying attention to the clock in your body, not the one on the wall. So really thinking about when you do stuff, not necessarily uh, what has to be done around intensity and your brain, etc. And also around how good are you at delegating? And I know that's a bit of a D word that people don't like to hear very much, but it's not just about delegating, you know, tasks you don't want to do. It's around how do I, you know, even delegate decisions. How do I delegate things that mean that I get a bit more space to do the things I should be doing and leveling up myself and leveling up my team around me? So they're the four. Yeah, that, that's interesting because um, you also talk about how you need to be more essential but less involved when you talk about that delegating piece. And I think a lot of people think, well, that, that sounds rather intriguing, but, but how do you do that? How do you, how do you become more essential but less involved at the same time? Well, it's, it's the challenge of the end, really. So I think it was Ron Heifetz at Harvard talked about the challenge of the end. He talked about the balcony and the dance. And so the idea being that you can be up on the balcony viewing everything that's going on, very strategic view if you want to call it that, or you can be in the dance, being involved, being on the dance floor and being shoulder to shoulder with people. And he said it was never about either or. It was always the challenge of the end. How do I do both? I think when it comes to working and leading teams, for example, 
example. The essential is um, is where you're helping solve problems for the future. You're helping resolve things that your team's going to need help with in the future. Whereas essential is I'm getting into the now. It's the problems we have right now that need to be resolved. And I think you'll you'll know as a leader if you're being more involved because your, your calendar will just be full of back-to-back meetings where people are wanting to pick your brain, wanting you to do things, uh, wanting you to, wanting to ask things of you, needing your input all the time. You'll know you're more essential when you've got great quality weekly or fortnightly one-on-ones that are great conversations about moving forward, about solving, you know, larger level problems, higher level problems. So most of the people I speak to who are swamped, who spend all their day in meetings, I'm saying you're just too involved in, in everything. You've got to get out and level up and, and look at a broader and longer term problems or issues. How do you move from one to the other though? I mean, people often feel like they need to be there answering those problems and feeling like they can't delegate because perhaps they don't have somebody that they trust to be able to make the right decisions, or maybe they don't even have that authority in that in the workplace to be able to make those decisions. Or, I mean, how would you, I guess, make that transition effectively? This is going to sound overly simplistic, but it's pretty powerful. But the mantra that I often give my coaching clients is more ask, less tell. And so if you're more involved, it's because you're telling people what to do and you're giving people advice and you're telling people the answers. Whereas when you begin to ask more questions, uh, you know, look, overly simplistic example is, um, Donna, what should I do? And for me to go, what have you already tried? You know, what have you already thought about? and begin to shift them into doing a little bit more of the thinking. And this this works whether you're with peers, whether it's your your boss, whether it's your subordinates, the more ask, less tell is, is a much more, frankly, time effective because I could go down the path. You say to me, Donna, what do you reckon I should do? And I could give you a massive big answer. And because I can talk a lot, you get to the end and go, yeah, I already tried that. Oh, okay, well, that was a massive waste of time. So just in and of itself, the idea of tell me first what you've done and then or what you've tried or what you've thought about because that will contextualise your response. So that just that one simple thing in and of itself can, A, be much more productive and time effective, but it also is much more empowering to the people around you and you're creating then a culture of self you know, self-learning as opposed to, you know, learned helplessness, which happens when you're just too busy giving. And, and people will say that. It's just easier if I just give them the answer. I'm like, sure it is. It's much easier just to say, here, do this. But in the long term, you're creating a culture of learned helplessness. Your calendar will be yeah. very busy. Yeah, and creating dependence as well. Correct. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed part one of my conversation with Donna McGeorge. I'll bring you part two next week. Oh, and I would so appreciate if you would subscribe, rate, and review this show if you like it. That would help other people find this podcast. I'll be back next week to uncover more stories and strategies for a successful future. Till then, cheers.